0: This is the Bartender Journey Podcast.
1: It's the Bartender Journey Podcast number 188. My name's Brian Vincent Weber. Thanks for listening. Today we're going to talk to Kurt Maitland of the Manhattan Whiskey Club, which is a members-only club that gathers monthly for private tastings. And he also contributes to the whiskeyreviewer.com website and uh, also to a new book called The New Single Malt Whiskey Book. And that'll be our book of the week. This book is focused mostly on single malt whiskeys that are not made in Scotland. And this is a really interesting category that uh, that I really like a lot, and uh, it's, it's evolving quickly. I guess you'd say these are Scotch-style whiskeys, but uh, you can't call a whiskey Scotch unless it's produced in Scotland, right? So these are single malt whiskeys, and uh, you probably know the definition of a single malt whiskey, right? It's one that is produced from a from malted barley at a single distillery. So many producers around the world have, begin, have begun producing this style of whiskey. For instance, uh, Westward Single Barrel Oregon Straight Malt Whiskey, which is awesome. It's delicious. And uh, you could read my tasting notes about that on uh, on bartenderjourney.net slash tastings. That's a page where I put some uh, tasting notes on different spirits that I try. Um, but uh, I wrote about the Westward uh, Whiskey that it's a contender for the Desert Island Whiskey List. It's that good. Uh, anyway, this book, the new single malt whiskey book, is described as... The most definitive guide to the new revolution in single malt whiskey across the globe, complete with cocktail recipes, bottle reviews, tasting notes, distiller interviews, and contributions from award-winning experts. And one of those contributors is our guest today, Mr. Kurt Maitland. Before we get to that, let's talk about Bar Institute for a minute. It's being held here in New York in just a few days as I record this on November 2nd, 2016. And it begins on Sunday, November 6th, and it runs through Wednesday, November 9th. Uh, tickets are still available. Some tickets are still available. I know the, uh, the sort of VIP or the high-end ticket uh, sold out, but they still have the general admission. It's only $25. What a bargain. Uh, and you can get that on thebarinstitute.org. And uh, we'll be there. Uh, uh, we'll be trying to uh, go live on Facebook. Uh, so if you uh, like the Bartender Journey page on Facebook, you might see us popping up some videos there about what the goings-on at the Bar Institute. So uh, get over there to Facebook and search for Bartender Journey and like that page and uh, you might see us going live. Uh, and uh, if you're going to be there, please let me know. I already heard from uh, a listener that's going to, Bartender, uh, to Bar Institute and we're going to try to meet up for a cocktail on uh, Tuesday afternoon, I think. And uh, so if you're going to be around, let me know. Maybe uh, you could join us. There's an industry kickoff event for Bar Institute and it's all organized by our friend Craig, who's a bartender in Hoboken. And he organized this whole thing. He, he's wor- he works at the Shepherd and Knucklehead Bar in Hoboken. And uh, our friend Hazel, also, who works on the show, she's going to be there as well. And Hazel sent this over. So, uh, and hopefully you'll go to this event. Hazel will be there. Craig will be there. I, unfortunately, will have to be behind the bar at my bar. I can't make it. But, um... I hope you'll go. So uh, this is the industry kickoff event for Bar Institute. It's for bartenders and other industry people in the New York uh, City area on Sunday, November 6, 2016. Join us for a pregame Bar Institute kickoff party in Hoboken at the Shepherd and the Knucklehead. Mix, mingle, and share knowledge in a casual setting over complimentary punches and spirits. Welcome all bartenders, servers, bar managers, liquor reps. And for more information, email hazel at hazel at whiskeywithme.com. So it's hazel at whiskey with an E with me dot com. And uh, so we'll have a link up to that on on the bartender journey uh, posting that goes along with this show, number 188. Uh, we'll talk to Kurt in just a minute, but first we need to do a cocktail of the week. Since we're talking whiskey this week, we better do a whiskey cocktail, and it's the Old Pal. If you listen to this show regularly, you know that I love Negronis, and I love Boulevardiers, so here's another variation on that. It's uh, basically a Boulevardier with uh, dry, vermo- dry vermouth rather than sweet vermouth, and uh, it's also heavy on the whiskey, So and, and you use rye whiskey for that. So, So the Old Pal is two parts. Rye whiskey. I used a really nice rye from Maine called Gunpowder Rye. Um, and so one part Campari and one part dry vermouth. Stir that up. Strain it into a chilled coupe glass or a Nick and Nora glass, and uh, it's generally served up without ice, Uh, unlike the Negroni, which generally comes served over ice unless otherwise specified. So, uh, yeah, that's a delicious drink, the old pal. All right, let's talk to Kurt Maitland. So uh, I'm interested to hear about this uh, organization you're you're, uh, you're involved with, you're president of, yeah, the Manhattan Whiskey Club.
0: Yeah, uh, I've given myself the uh, title of curator, I mean, essentially I'm the dictator, but I'm a benevolent dictator of the group. I mean, all I really end up doing is um, bringing in in brands to talk talk to our members, trying to plan events and increase the brand, or actually increase the members' knowledge of the different whiskeys that are available to them in the market. Because you know, as a bartender, there's a standard set of releases that's in most bars. You're going to find a Jameson's or a Bush mills. You're going to find like a maker's or a Jim Beam or a Jack. If you're lucky, it's higher end. I mean, you'll generally find, you know, a couple blends, a Dewar's, a Chivas, a Johnny, but the world of whiskey is a lot bigger than that. So, um, my hope is that, I can introduce enough different whiskeys to our members that when they go to a store or a bar and they see some of that variety in front of them, they can say, hey, I've had that brand. I've had an art bag. I've had a Bal Blair. I like that one or I don't like that one. If they want to make a purchase or recommend it to a friend, they're kind of armed with the kind of knowledge you need. Um I feel it's harder with whiskey than it is something like wine because the sure. price point's so much higher. Like most people aren't afraid of walking in a wine store and picking a red, picking a blend, picking a white. You know, you figure you don't like it, it didn't
1: cost that much. And it, it it's not as much of a commitment on, because you're, uh, you're going to probably consume that bottle in one night where uh, hopefully exactly. a nice you bottle know, of whiskey is going to last you a, a couple of days.
0: <laughs> yeah, But if you get a nice bottle of whiskey, you don't like it. Like if you get like, let's say, for example, you're told that Lagavulin's a good whiskey. And it is. But if you don't like smoky, that's not the right whiskey for you.
1: Yeah, that's (laughs) not what you'd call an entry-level whiskey.
0: (laughs) Right. And then once you have it, and if you don't like it, then it's it. And it's not the whiskey's fault. It's just that you didn't happen to know what you should be getting or didn't know enough about your options (laughs) before you made that purchase. So the hope is that the members, you know, they one, they enjoy themselves, have a good time, um, make friends with their fellow members, but also that they get to... um, taste whiskeys they either wouldn't have tasted on their own or get introduced to new whiskeys or spirits. Um, So, yeah, that's that's my overall goal. And so far we've been doing okay.
1: Very cool. So, uh, is this sort of a secret society or what? what's it take to be a member of this club?
0: Well, usually what we've, because it only started last year. So what we've been doing is I had a small group of people to start. Everybody else who's joined has either been recommended by a member or somebody who I've run into thought they'd be interested and I said, Well, hey, email me, I'll reach out to you with the general details and you can decide if you want to join or not. Um, we'd like to keep it a reasonable size because of course it's hard to do much teaching when there's a hundred people who are drinking whiskey. So you want to keep the tastings to uh, you know, anywhere from as low as 10 people to as many as 35, depending on what's being had and how many whiskeys. And there are plans to kind of do big events and small events to kind of let people kind of get to experience it and in a bigger format, but also do things to kind of keep that small, um, more intimate
1: uh, tasting nature, tasting club we had when we first started. Very cool. Well, let's talk about tasting spirits because it's it's a it's a journey. You know, it's something that takes a lot of development and and practice. Uh, so, what's your? Uh, you, I think you do uh, whiskey reviews and things as well, right? Yes.
0: So, I mm-hmm. uh, I'm the deputy editor for the Whiskey Reviewer. Cool. So that's an online web magazine, and we focus on whiskey um i've been doing it i believe 3 or 4 years at this point um and so i've in doing that you know i've been forced to increase my knowledge of whiskey exponen- exponentially mm-hmm. because you know i end up interviewing people with a lot more experience than me interviewing mm-hmm. a master distiller who's been doing it for 30 years right you go to scotland you know there's somebody's been in the job for 40 so I have to have a good working knowledge of, you know, what do they do and what's special about their whiskey and what's the differences between how it used to be. Um,
1: and you need, that, uh, you need to some the vocabulary facility. as well to go to go along with that.
0: Exactly. So I've been building up a nice uh, library of books so I can learn more. I try to ask a lot of questions and go to events. And I have some friends who know whiskey better than me. I'm, my when I started, I had another friend who would help, who would write with us, and he was always kind of worried. It's Like, I'm always afraid of making a mistake. Or I'm thinking, what if I'm wrong? I'm like, well, at this point, we probably know more than 90% of the world's population about whiskey. Right. I don't have to be worried about the other
1: 10. Yeah. <laughs> so,
0: right. you know, if I learn, I can kind of move the numbers. The more I learn, the more I can move the numbers. Right. And you know, I've been to Scotland. I'm planning a trip to Japan to hit those distilleries wow. next year. I've been to Kentucky. And there are obviously more distilleries to go to, but I've kind of put together a good network of people in industry, plus people, um, let's say, at bars, plus people who are fans or collectors, that I can always, if it's something I don't know, I can always reach out to them. And, you know, we pass along information as we find it. So that's kind of, that's very helpful.
1: Cool. So I'd love to hear, there's a lot of different approaches to uh, to evaluating spirit and tasting it. And uh, I'd love to hear yours, have, take us through your process when you're going to write, say, a review of a whiskey.
0: What I like to do is um, I try to make sure there's a decent amount of time between me eating um, before I taste. It's funny, I tell people I probably drink less now that I'm doing reviews than I did when I didn't review. Because, you know, everything you taste, it's going to have some kind of residual effect. I try not to taste, or at least as far as formally reviewing, more than two or three whiskeys a night. You can always do more because there are ways to reset your palate. Um, dark chocolate, unsweetened coffee. But what I try to do is is run through some criteria for the whiskey. So, for example, color mouthfeel, finish, nose. Um, I try to do it a couple times. So maybe I smell something the first time that I don't smell once it's been opened. Like that first time I open it, I get some particular whiff of something, some fruit or something. And it kind of fades out if I've had the bottle for a little while. Yeah. But I want to kind of make sure I'm not crazy and I just do- try to document it again. And I just go through those criteria and then start writing my notes that way.
1: Cool. So well, let's start, let's start. at the beginning with the with the color. How much uh, how much information can we really get from that?
0: Amusingly enough, not as much as you'd like to think. Right. The problem with color is that in in Scotland they're allowed to use um, caramel, not for flavor, but for coloring to keep up consistency. Right. So what happens is is that you will have whiskeys that are in the market that they've Caramel has been added in order to make all the whiskeys on a shelf look the same. So you're not getting the real color.
1: All, all the, the whiskeys within it. that brand, you're saying?
0: Right. Um, but more than you know, several brands do it. It's just, you know, it's what happens is they they know the customers kind of get spooked of, why is this one lighter than that one? Right. Same whiskey, that one bad? Is there a problem? Mm-hmm. They figure just to take away that issue. We're gonna um kind of make it all even. Right. it's not an issue in american bur- in bourbon in bourbon, you're not allowed to add anything, yeah. so basically the color you get is the color you get
1: only um, only water and, after it comes out of the barrel
0: <laughs> right, so the thing is, is that you know if you get a really dark rich looking bourbon, odds are it's probably been in that cast for a long time um there's no guarantee of that right but That's because it's going to depend on the char level and where it was kept and whatever else. So colors, it's one of those things that I I will always put down, but it might actually be the least useful bit of information for the consumer. Because it tells you the least. Like, you learn more if I tell you what it smells like or what it tastes like or what the mouthfeel is or the finish or what the barrel um, was. Because Obviously, as you move on to European, um, you move on to scotch or Japanese whiskey, the barrels change, type of wood changes. The taste you're going to get from that wood, what you expect to get from that wood changes. So that's actually, it's better I told you that it was a hogshead or it was an old sherry barrel, or an old bourbon barrel. Mm-hmm. Um, which is funny because now that we speak about it, I'm thinking, huh, yeah, that is actually, um, I mean – you add the, you put in the color just to kind of give another descriptor, but really it's not that useful of yeah, a bit of information.
1: no you know I was just talking to somebody about this uh about rum, and you know it used to be we'd describe rum as you know silver, amber, or dark, you know, and that's really not the way to describe it that's not the proper way to describe it because you're you know uh, as with scotch rum can have. Uh, caramel added to it, flavoring, or um, to change the color. But uh, you, you know what we need to be talking about is was it made? You know what was the raw material? What, is it a pot still? A column still? What kind of barrel was used? Right. So, actually, I mean,
0: actually, I mean now that I mean I'll, i imagine what will happen is now that you've made me think about it, I will <laughs> keep color, but I think I might have to add something more information about the barrel. I usually will put it in in the description. Mm-hmm. So usually, when I start off my reviews, you know I'll do a little brief history of the brand um and just that way you can differentiate like you know this is a special release from that brand, this is a standard you ten know, year old this is a one off mm-hmm. single cast, and in there I'll put in oh, it's a special sherry cast oh it's a um it's in a, um it's like Japanese oak right. cask um but like I said, that that's important for the consumer because ideally, right. as much as I don't sell the whiskey, the hope is that if the information I give um, a person will help them make a decision as to, well, okay, I've read this review. Am I interested in that whiskey? Um, do mm-hmm. I want to buy it? Do I want to spend money on it? Do so Maybe I want to buy it in a bar first so I can find it in a bar and just drink it and taste it and think – do I want to spend the money and have it in my house?
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> or is
0: it kind of like I'm happy with a one-off?
1: Uh-huh. So, all right. So let's move on to the nose. And uh what's your process there? There's also different philosophies with uh, how to nose a spirit.
0: Well, I have all these different glasses I end up using. Um, Compete the glasses. I have um, the glass, the Denver and Lily, Lily glass. You want a glass that gives you enough space from – um the spirit and your nose. So basically enough to like kind of have alcohol not be the dominant thing you get when you're smelling. And I noticed that actually certain shaped glasses are far better. I find that I became addicted to the Denver Lily glass when I got it because it's kind of shaped like a, like a volcano. Hmm. So it's, um, you know, kind of rounded, um, and then it Um, looks like, yeah, it looks like a volcano. The liquid is low on the bottom and then it's kind of all comes up, but there's so much space between your nose and the spirit that what gets up to you is less alcohol and more actual you know,
1: the elements of the spirit. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, And then that's also the reason why you don't swirl a spirit like you would with wine, because you don't want to just be blasted with alcohol.
0: Exactly. Because that, I mean, you won't almost all your nose all your notes regarding the nose would smell the same especially if you get like a really strong bourbon if you had a very short distance because the higher proof a very short distance between your nose and the spirit you know you can get basically burn out mm-hmm. your sensor apparatus by doing that so you right. kind of want enough space that you get the nose
1: um, that makes sense and I, I guess there's something that you know possibly there's sort of commingling of, of different, thing. I don't know if that's true, I'm making that up, but <laughs> it makes sense that you don't want to have your nose, you know, half an inch away from the liquid.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's like a, I always feel like you're, it'll get, it can get overwhelmed. And obviously, it's not true of every whiskey. A lot of, a lot of scotches are bottled at, you know, 80 proof. So yeah, there's alcohol, but it's not like you know a really smoky monster that's cast strength from Isla, or a really high-end bourbon like let's say a Stag Junior. It's mm-hmm. like put, you know, I remember one time, I think I was tasting either last year's Weller or last year's Stag, and it you know I mean the nose you can feel your nose hairs is curling back. I mean mm-hmm. it's a hundred and thirty something proof whiskey at close range. It's going to burn. So you want to, and I mean, there's always, you could always add a bit of water. And I often think that what I tend to do when I write is I will nose it as is. Then I will drink it as is, make my notes. I'll do it again with a drop of water to see if there are changes, if there are certain flavors that come up when the water is added, if there are certain flavors I get as far as – or certain um, nose that I get, changes in the nose with a little bit of water.
1: Oh, that's great. There's no
0: guarantee, but obviously I just want to see if there's any distinct change with
1: it. I because like that, going water, through, the, go through the entire process with and then without right. uh, or without and then with. I like that.
0: I try to do them both because there are some times where there are spirits where they need water. I don't sure. tend to think, you know, whiskeys that are, let's say, you know, 80 proof need water. It's more because as I've gotten more into whiskey, I've dealt with more independent bottlings and more cast strength releases where you want to know if water adds anything to the flavor of the whiskey. Is it worth your while? Because, I mean, you've you've paid your money for it. It's like, does it make it easier to drink? Does it, let's say, change the finish in a good way? Does it bring up certain flavors that you weren't getting when it was at, you know, its cast strength? That said, I don't find it happens that often. Most times, and it might be peculiar to my own taste, I tend to like them um, at whatever they were bottled at.
1: Right. Well, the the master distiller has, unless it's cast strength, has added water to it after the fact to to bring it to the place where he believes it should be. Right.
0: And some people, you know, I mean, I've had people um, tasting stuff and it's one of those things where there's times people will think a smokier whiskey is – higher proof well, I'm like, it's actually the same proof as that like Glenn and you just had, right? Right. Like it, there's no difference. It just so happens you feel it because, oh, it's smokier. So right. the taste makes you think that it's a higher proof whiskey than it really is. Um, so that's also an option, but yeah, I mean, that's generally how I go through it. And then, you know, I will, let's say if I know others, other releases from that brand, I might make a comparison you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, I like the nose on this better because they or I like the taste of this better or mouthfeel. I find that with the, um, with the brands and the nose, there are times when the nose will lie.
1: But, <laughs> like, yeah.
0: Not all the time. Sometimes you'll smell it and it smells amazing. And you taste it and it's just not up to snuff. It's the best case scenario is that you smell it, and everything you smelled is there when you taste it. And then there's other stuff, other elements um, emerge too. So worst case scenario, the more annoying thing is when you get a beautiful nose, you taste the whiskey and something something's off. <laughs> maybe it's more astringent than you like. it's bulkier than you like. Um, the finish is short. Um, and that's kind of why I tend to want to review it several times. not always given the I'm not always able to do that. It depends on how many like how much of the whiskey I actually have. Sometimes I get little samples and it's two ounces. So really, you know, what, you can have one ounce pours. Um, but you try to go back to it and, you know, reassess before you put up the review. And, you know, let's see. Do it again another day. Is it better with water that time? Is it as good with water? Was mm-hmm. it the same as when you had it the first time? That kind of
1: stuff. Right. So, so when you're nosing a whiskey, um, I've learned several different methods, and uh, what what works best for me is this sort of one nostril at a time method. What, what do you? How, how do you? How do you do it?
0: What I usually do, and I mean, I think that I mean, everybody has their their methodology. I mean, it is still you're still smelling it, you're still taking it in. Um, a lot of people have told me, and it seems to work, is where you have your mouth slightly open while you're smelling so what happens is you're kind of you're kind of making a loop it's going you know nose down and not quite into your mouth but that air you're kind of making a loop and that's kind of like you're getting it to circulate in some respects Mm -hmm. um so you you know inhale and it seems to work yeah that i mean the thing is whiskey's strong so generally you will smell it whether it's one nostril or both um And I don't think it'll make any material change. But it is important to note that, like, especially I find with smoky whiskeys, people get put off by the smell of the smoke or the peat. Right. The problem, or it's not so much a problem, but the truth is, is that there are times when the peat's more aggressive in the nose than it is in the flavor. Mm -hmm. So you'll have a whiskey that smells peatier than it really is, but when you taste it, peat's just an element. It's just part of the mix. It's, you know, it's like salad dressing on a salad. <laughs> salad dressing affects the salad, but depending on what's in the salad, those other flavors will come through. Right. You know, okay. so I try to get people, like if I'm doing tastings, I don't start with a smoky whiskey, No, no. but maybe I'll finish with one. Uh-huh people can, you know, understand the difference. They go, process is relatively the same. Don't be afraid of it. Don't let the smoke. Um, but it's one of those things you you want to let people get later or get into later.
1: Right, right. Okay, so then uh, we go into the tasting. I am just happen to have a little something here that uh, our mutual friend Hazel gave me. It's, a, um, it's from the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. It's a single malt Scotch whiskey from a single cask 56.4 proof. It doesn't give the brand. Interesting. wrestling. It's a small... It has uh, small numbers on s- it. numbers, it has yeah.
0: numbers. <laughs> Everything's coded. Um, I have some stuff from them, and they're really good. I like... I've found as I've gotten into whiskey that I'm a big fan of the independents. So Scottsball Whiskey Society is amazing. Gordon McPhail, um, Single Cast Nation. It's just that they get you kind of closer to the root. See, I, the way I feel, and I think it's probably just because I drink enough whiskey that I know this now. I like when I get to water it down or not water it down. Right. So like like you said, the distiller has decided, I like my whiskey best at 80 proof, you know, or at 86. I might decide I like it at 100, but I can't do that if I'm giving it, if you give it to me at 80. Mm-hmm. If I get it at like the proof you have, I can add water to it and bring it down to a level I prefer right. or leave it where it is.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Um, so the one you have, I mean, what I usually do is take a take a small sip, and write down, and actually, small sip, hold it in my mouth, and write down the flavors that I'm getting, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then I'd say, you know, I try to hold it for you know 10 seconds. Some guys will do it longer, because like like, like food, the longer you chew it, the more things get released. Right. right. Um, but I, you know, I'll at least start with 10. And you get different flavors from different parts of your tongue, right? Um, which is true. I find if I have enough, if I have enough in there and I hold it long enough, and I can coat my mouth and coat my tongue, I'll get what I need out of it. Mm-hmm. And then I'll also so you do that first initial sip, you hold it in, you write down what you're tasting. Then I'll do it again. You got to pick something else up because you had the initial shock of alcohol. Right. There might be other flavors that emerge.
1: And that first taste, that first taste will also kind of reset your palate if you're at a tasting, or you, you know, maybe you just ate, like you said, you, you. Well, you have a whole process where you don't uh, taste anything before, or have you know even eat for a while.
0: Yeah, like I try to, you know, because you. It's one of those things where it's not a problem to let's say eat after you're familiar with the whiskey. Like you know, you get a whiskey you like it, and you decide, hey, I'm gonna have like you know curry fries and this whiskey. <laughs> That's fine, mm-hmm. but you should have already written down your. You should already have your kind of base universe of tasting notes done, right? And then you're like, oh, okay, because how does a curry affect that? Because obviously, if you're you've eaten that and you go right into your whiskey, it's gonna affect what you're tasting.
1: <laughs> <laughs> by Not the way, necessarily in a good one. By the no. way, by the way, curry and scotch goes amazingly well together. Yeah, in, in, in particular, Glenfiddich in particular goes really well with with uh, curry. <laughs>
0: yeah, the thing that you find, for example, um, blue cheese goes well with like Lagavulin. Mm. Um, you know, it's like it makes the blue cheese sweeter. Mm-hmm. It takes away some of the smoke, makes the blue cheese sweeter. You're like, wow, you know.
1: Well, I guess uh, I guess what we're getting at is strong. It can stand up to strong flavors.
0: Yes. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it'll pull certain things out of the whiskey, and I think both of them will take away perhaps some elements people think are negative from each, and what you're left with, what survives that, is perhaps sweeter, easier to Digest easier to take in. Mm-hmm. Um, assuming, of course, you have an issue with uh, you know blue cheeses. I have people who we did a tasting like that, and people like I don't like blue cheese. I'm mean, just take a sip and try it. They're like, wow, this is great. Okay. They don't. They were looking looking to buy blue cheese just to have it with the whiskey, as like with crackers and stuff. I'm like, okay, you yeah. <laughs> know, you learn something every day.
1: Yep, there you go uh so um as far as developing that that vocabulary uh, uh of being able to describe the different um you know pick out different flavors from a whiskey how can you uh how how can people develop that that sense or that uh that skill
0: i find I always think of it in food terms, even though what you're tasting isn't always there aren't always food descriptors mm-hmm. to use it could be you smell something. Or if it's a if it's a, like for example, new rye, young rye smells like dill to me. Mm-hmm. You know, it just does. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, okay. so like fresh dills, I'll write that down. I may get something where it's citrusy, or I get something where you say, for example, stone fruits. Oh, it could, and you could be more specific, like oh, cherries. Citrus. Reminds me of a tangerine or lemon zest.
1: Right. You know, you yeah, I think, of, I think that's a great way to go, too, where you, you say, Well, I, t- I taste citrus. Well, what kind of citrus? Orange. Well, wh- is it orange peel or is it the uh, fruit itself or is yeah, it burnt but, orange or what is yeah, it?
0: Because it's cooking. I find that people who, like the people I look at, the reviewers that, you know, amaze me, they like food. Same mm-hmm. thing with the, the distillers. They're fans of food, they're fans of wine, and, and that affects how they make their spirit and how they review it. So when they'll talk about it, you know, it's usually it's going to be in fruit term in food terms. So you'll hear grandma's, you know, christmas cake, yeah. especially among the uh the people from the UK. It so happens my family's from the West Indies. So I've actually smelled that where it's mm-hmm. maybe a bit spicy. It has like the cake is dark, it's almost black. Um it has fruit in it. It has citrus in it it usually you know it's like and it makes sense because a lot of the whiskeys you drink are going to be um finished in a sherry barrel or that's where it's going to be aged so that sherry that would go into a christmas cake is the same sherry they're tasting when they taste the whiskey but you know it's obviously hard because like i haven't had your mom's christmas cake (laughs) (laughs) so it's hard making that descriptor but certainly if it's again citrus or vanilla or, or caramel. Or dark chocolate. Um those are things people have had and they kind of get those. And if you do if you get the descriptions right, it can lead them into deciding whether they want to taste it or not. If you get a whiskey that's let's say it's citrusy but on the lemony side, somebody might decide, you know what? I'd rather it be something else. Mm. Or hey, it's tastes like, you know, like a fleshy fruit like peach. That might attract somebody. Right. You know? So
1: Well what I found, um, you know, going going to tastings. Uh, I've been to a lot of them and, uh, you know, in the beginning, it's sort of like, what do you taste? Well, I don't know. I taste whiskey. And then, you know, but then, and then somebody will shout out, well, uh, you know, I taste cinnamon. I'm like, oh yeah, I do taste cinnamon. And then, you know, I taste, uh, you know, uh, dark chocolate. Oh, I taste that too, you know? But then, uh, event, you know, it takes a long time if, of, especially going to these events, I think is the most important thing you can do to develop that, to develop your palate. And then, you know, eventually you can, you can pick them out yourself, that's been yeah. that's been my experience.
0: No, and I agree because, I mean, w- where I am now versus where I was when I started, you know, entirely different situation because now, you know, a lot of the whiskeys are more familiar to me. I've had them. I kind of know that what I'm looking for if I read the notes about the cask, um, there are some whiskeys that aren't generally – I mean, they're not generally released as a single malt. They're usually used in blends. And they're very interesting characteristics when added to another whiskey. Um, I had the pleasure of interviewing um, the master blender, um, which is Jim Bev- Dr. Jim Beveridge for Diageo, and talked to him about Johnny Walker. And I asked him, I go, what would you tell somebody who loves single balls um, about the advantages of a blend? And he goes, basically single malts are one note. They're very good. Mm. You have very specific qualities that you're getting from that spirit, from that whiskey um, at that time. However, if you blend a grain with a smoky whiskey, with another whiskey, elements show up similar to what we discussed with the blue cheese and lack of or blue cheese and smoky whiskies that don't exist in any of those whiskeys separately um, so for for you to be able to experience that it's always good to try that and I think along with what you're saying about you know going to tastings and expanding your palate that's Basically, how
1: you learn. Well, that was interesting what you're saying about the, the single malt being just a single note or a single flavor of like uh, I'm sure most people and I didn't know until recently that um, Lagavulin is one of the blends that goes into Johnny Walker Black, and that's so that's where they get that the smoky element in Johnny Walker Black. Well,
0: and the thing is, it well, here's uh, the thing: it used to go into I think it used to go into Johnny like more of it used to go into Johnny Black. They switch it over to Coila because Coila oh. is a bigger distillery. Oh, okay. Um, but, but yeah, when you when you talk to people about blends, um, I tell people, you know, listen, there are 20-something different whiskeys in here. I'm like, what do you mean? It's like, that's what a blend is. Um, and each each whiskey adds an element. It's like cooking. <laughs> right. You know, each ingredient adds something to the taste of it. And when or it's, it's like, like making a cocktail. Yeah, very much like making a cocktail. Yeah. I mean, I've tried my hand at making cocktails, and I'm actually okay, but I find myself to be relatively lazy. So therefore, I try to try to avoid any cocktail that requires more than four or five ingredients. Like, I'm happiest if I can do a nice cocktail that requires five things from you to do. Because
1: uh-huh.
0: it's much easier just to open up a bottle and just pour it in the glass versus, you
1: know. Um, yeah. But that's for me. Where did I hear? I heard somebody talk about this somewhere. Where uh, you know these spirits, whether they're making whiskey or uh, rum or whatever, you know, like how often are they? How how often is the master distiller saying, "This is it. This is the perfect, uh, you know, whiskey to make a Manhattan with." No, they they like it the way it is. You know, they they made it that way on purpose. <laughs> well,
0: I, I, and the thing is, I think that there's an added degree of difficulty using Scotch in a cocktail. I think it's easier to use bourbon. Yeah. I think bourbon is, I mean, they're both whiskey, but bourbon's a simpler whiskey. It's like, the, in, it doesn't take anything away from bourbon. Bourbon's great on its own. Right. But you kind of know what the qualities of bourbon are when you're making your cocktail. Right. Scotch, there are times when, you know, you add things to scotch and you get things you didn't expect.
1: <laughs> it's, yeah. it's like
0: a fussier ingredient between the two. Of them.
1: Yeah, I would totally agree with that. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's not easy to work with uh, in cocktails. But there, there's a few out there that are amazing.
0: impressive. A, a great scotch cocktail is a wonder to behold.
1: You know, Absolutely. Always happy to You're, have. You've had a uh, penicillin, I assume? Yes. Yeah, I have actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've definitely enjoyed it. Great drink. Well, uh Kurt, I really appreciate your time. This was a great conversation and uh I hope to uh run run into you soon and and share a dram of whiskey.
0: Yeah, you know, I mean if you if you love to meet up. Yeah. If you want to come to one of our tastings. Yeah. You know, feel free. You could be my guest. If I can help in any way, just feel free. Give me a buzz. You have have my number. And you have my email. I do.
1: That's great. And if anybody was interested in trying to get into the uh, Manhattan Whiskey Club, I know it's not like an open calling, but uh, how would they go about finding out more information?
0: They can email me at Kurt, so K-U-R-T, at whiskeyselections.com. It's whiskey spelled the way Americans
1: spell it, so whiskey Hmm. with an E okay sounds great all right kurt i really appreciate your time and uh as i said i hope to run into you soon
0: all right yeah so yeah let's make that happen for the years uh, i turn to i turn into uh i don't know a couch potato when it gets cold so. right right.
1: <laughs> all right. All right all right cheers my friend all right we'll be in touch much. Thank you. Okay. Bye now. Yep. Okay. All right, there you go. Maybe you want to join a whiskey club or start one yourself. It's actually a really great thing for bars to start clubs like this. It's a great way to get people in uh, once a month, say on a Tuesday after, uh, evening when it's slow or something like that. Um, so it's, it's a really cool thing to do uh, for a bar, or it's a great thing to do to, uh, to join a club and, and find other people that dig uh, whiskey as much as you do. And to uh, it's a great way to learn. Uh, just to be around that type of people and and usually there's great um great presentations to go along with that and uh great whiskey to drink stand by for our toast but first i'll remind you my name is brian vincent weber the website is bartenderjourney.net on twitter you can find me at bar keep tips and instagram it's bartender and we'll try to post some pictures uh from bar institute on instagram and remember we'll also Try to uh, go live, shoot some videos uh, on Facebook. So, uh, so get over, get over to the Bartender Journey Facebook page. Just search Facebook for Bartender Journey. All right, time for our toast. May you have warm words on a cold evening, a full moon on a dark night, and a smooth road all the way to your door. Cheers. We'll see you next time on the Bartender Journey podcast.